Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is opened up to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, if you get the Old Testament cranking, we're going to be there in just a moment. We're going to notice one verse, really just one phrase, one expression in this one verse as we get ready to study in the Word of God. These thoughts in Judges chapter 6 will help to frame up everything that we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. As you're turning there and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship, I'll join in the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody today. We have a really have a good number considering all the folks that we have of our own number who are out of town and out of state and out of the country, but we've got lots of guests with us today and we appreciate so much the fact that you're here and hope that you are being uh, encouraged as we worship together and we hope that we're helping you to serve the Lord. Much to say this morning and I want to get right to it in Judges the 6th chapter. As Gideon has this conversation with the angel of the Lord, and in the middle of that conversation, he reflects on the oppression that he and all the other Israelites are currently feeling at the hand of the Midianites. And so he asks this question in Judges 8, or Judges 6, and in verse 13, he said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Last weekend, I had the opportunity to preach a series of lessons for the College View congregation up in Elizabethtown. And the subject that I had the opportunity to get to preach on was the subject of being ready to give an answer. That's taken from that idea in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, about being ready to give an answer, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you, and be ready to do that with meekness and with fear. And so in those lessons, we talked about many of the questions and objections that non-believers have about matters of Christian faith, and how it is that we can go about to be prepared to deal with those questions and provide answers to those objections. After services on Saturday afternoon, I was talking with a few of the teenagers there, and they got talking and asking about another apologetics issue and how it is that you go about addressing this particular question. And the issue that they were asking about was in very much the same way the issue that Gideon was asking about here in Judges 6 verse 13. It's the question of why. Why, God? Why, God, if you're so good and you're so amazing and so awesome and so sovereign as we believe that you are, if you can do so much, then why? Why are these things happening to us? If the Lord is with us, why has all of this befallen us? That is the question of evil and suffering. And while Gideon frames that question, I believe, from a very sincere and honest and good-natured standpoint... You should know that that question usually when it comes up, it's usually asked by non-believers with much more ferocity and angst and anger. The British actor and renowned renowned atheist Stephen Fry, he posed it this way. He was asked the question, hey, if God was real and you had the opportunity to meet God, what would you say to Him? This was Stephen Fry's response. He said, I would say to God... Bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world where there is such misery that is not our fault, that is utterly, utterly evil? Stephen Fry and many others just like him, they stand on the argument of evil and suffering in this world as being proof that God does not exist. That God cannot exist when there is so much pain and sorrow 
and grief and crime and terrorism and war and death in this world. Now, sometimes the question comes, not from an honest and kind standpoint like Gideon did, and it doesn't necessarily come from an angry and vitriolic standpoint like Stephen Fry did. Sometimes the question is framed in a very intellectual sort of way, in a very logical-sounding sort of argument. It maybe kind of goes like this. If God is God, then that means that He is all-powerful and that He is all-loving. And we would certainly say an amen to both of those things. Absolutely, God is all-powerful and He is all-loving. But the logical thing kind of goes on this way. Well, if He's all-powerful and He doesn't stop the suffering, then that means God can't be very loving. And if He is all-loving and He loves people just so very much and He just can't stop the suffering, then that means He's not actually very powerful. Whichever end you want to come out on there, you still come out at the same place, and that is, well, there's just no God. And that is the argument that many of our atheist friends and non-believing friends stand on as they challenge people of faith and those who are followers of the Lord. And let's be honest, that is a daunting challenge. Not just from the standpoint of us being able to give a defense for our faith in God, but that can be a daunting challenge for us personally as I try to wrestle with and make sense of the suffering that I am enduring. The question of evil and suffering in this world is one that I must address in my own mind so that I am then able to help address that and give an answer in the minds of others. And this morning, that's exactly what we want to attempt to do. Gideon wrestled with this question. Before him, great men like Job wrestled with this question. And I would imagine that essentially every believer since then has wrestled with this question to some degree or another. Evil and suffering in this world, it is a universal problem. Which means this is not some abstract, theoretical, theological, esoteric kind of question. No, it is real and it is practical. And if we are to have faith ourselves in God, much less have the competence to be able to share that faith with others then we need to know what to say when the existence of God is challenged on the basis of evil and suffering in this world. How do we respond to that question? I want you to know this morning that there are good answers to that question. And I want to set before you four of those answers, four solid answers that, number one, we need to be ready to believe. Four solid truths that we then need to be ready to affirm to others as we address this thorny issue. And that all begins by just talking a little bit about how evil is actually an argument for the existence of God. Have you ever thought about that? Let me read this little story to you, see if it kind of, maybe kind of helps to illustrate this point a little bit. The story goes like this. She came there often. It was her favorite place to gather with friends to eat. It was a perfect evening. She felt perfectly at ease but she did not know that he was watching her. He had come here before, and now was the moment, the moment of death, her death. It came swift, and it came brutal. The crowd scattered. He wasn't interested in them, just her. In a second, he pounced on her. She was dead. There were dozens of witnesses, but none of them would ever testify. The police were not summoned. Because cheetahs kill gazelles at the water hole every day. 
Now, up until that last line, that story sounds kind of creepy, doesn't it? It makes us really uncomfortable, makes us squirm a little bit until we get to the end when we realize that it's not a story about some serial killer stalking another person. No, instead, it's a story about the jungle. It's a story about the animal kingdom. And suddenly what felt so wrong kind of leading up to that moment, what made us squirm in the beginning, what made us call out for justice for that woman, suddenly it all changed with the realization that this is just a story about a cheetah doing what cheetahs are going to do. But what if I change that story to where the setting is not the jungle, but instead it's a restaurant? And it's not filled with a bunch of other animals, it's filled with people. And the victim here is not a gazelle, the victim is a woman. And she's the one who dies at the hands of a serial murderer. Well, now it's completely different, isn't it? But here's my question. Why is it different? If atheism and evolution are true, then we're all just animals. So what makes it evil for a human to kill and not for a cheetah to kill? You know, when people start running off all of those scenarios about about Hitler and how he killed all those Jews, and man, that was so terrible and awful that he did that. Or the terrorist on 9-11 flying those planes in the building. Man, that was awful. It was terrible. So evil for people to do that. My question is... From where do those moral judgments come from? When we make those kinds of conclusions, that was evil, that was wrong, that was wicked, where do those judgments come from? Where does that sense of right and wrong emanate from? The noted author C.S. Lewis, he used to be an atheist. And Lewis in his writings would often talk about what he used as kind of the basis for his atheism. And he actually used the argument of evil in the world as being the basis for why he was an atheist. That is until finally he realized, and I quote, he realized that my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I ever get this idea of just and unjust? You know, generally speaking, everybody believes that people should not suffer. Everybody believes that people should not be treated unfairly simply because of the color of their skin. Everybody believes that people should not die of hunger or disease. But where did we get all of those shouldn'ts in our mind? Where did we get that sense of ought and here's some things we ought to do and here's some things that people ought not to do? Where'd that come from? You see, as soon as we start talking about good and evil and start framing things in those terms... What we are doing is we are actually acknowledging the one who has given us a law by which we are able to determine good from evil. By which we are able to differentiate right from wrong. The divine oughts, the divine shoulds that we are trying to live our lives by. In fact, that would be Romans chapter 2. Would you find Romans chapter 2 please? As Paul talks here about the conscience and the role that it plays in people's lives. In Romans 2... Paul says in verse 14 that people who don't even have God's written law, they show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it even without having heard it. They show, verse 15, Romans 2 verse 15, they show that God's law is written on their hearts for their conscience bears witness as their thoughts either accuse them or excuse them. If God doesn't exist then there is no standard for making those kinds of moral judgments. How would we even know what evil is if there was not one who is purely and wholly good? 
Which brings me to this second answer for evil and suffering in this world. And that is that contrary to popular belief, not all suffering is pointless. Find John chapter 11, please. In John chapter 11, this is a famous story where we read some remarkable things about the kind of good that can come even in a time of suffering. In John chapter 11, this is the story of the death of Lazarus. He has been in the tomb for four days when Jesus finally arrives to town. And Martha comes out to meet Jesus and she's kind of hot. She's kind of upset about all of this. And so she says to Jesus, John chapter 11, look in verse 21. She says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In fact, she was not the only one who said this. Drop down in the text, verse 37. Verse 37. The other people, some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, could he not also have kept this man from dying? You know, I think many of us, we would probably be inclined to kind of just join in with all of the crowds there that day and say, Hey! Why is the Lord allowing suffering to befall this family? These are good people. These people who are trying to do the right thing. Why are they having to deal with this? Well, John gives us some understanding about that. Would you look back up in the text? Look in verse 14. In verse 14, as Jesus is answering the apostles, He says to them in verse 14, He says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to Him. In fact, Jesus reiterates that point when He does finally arrive at the tomb. Drop down to verse 40. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up His eyes and He said, Father, I thank You that You've heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that You sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And so there was some suffering here, but it was suffering with a purpose. And that purpose was for the glory of God. And that purpose was to bring people to faith in God. And by the way, that is not the only time that we see this kind of thing in the Bible. Would you just step back a page or two in your Bible? Look in John 9. In John 9, there's an episode here with a man who has been born blind. And there's some discussion, really kind of some wrong-headed discussion on the apostles' part about this man's suffering. Jesus' response to them, though, is in verse 3, John 9, verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in Him. Do you see that there? God is at work in suffering. And God is doing things that we may not even understand at first, or in fact, we may never understand in this lifetime, but this passage and a host of others says that God can work through suffering. The atheist charges that suffering has no value. It's no good, it's pointless, it's meaningless, it's bad, we need to get rid of it. But the Bible begs to differ. That suffering can be very meaningful. We understand that, don't we? You think about it, if you get a bad toothache, what do you do about that? We go to the dentist. 
Well, when you go to the dentist, what ends up happening when you go there and you get sat down in the dentist chair? What happens there is more suffering. You get a root canal or some other kind of surgical procedure on your teeth. That usually hurts way worse than the original toothache. But that was suffering that served a purpose, didn't it? In fact, if you didn't know anything about dental procedures, or maybe let's ramp that up a little bit. If you didn't know anything about surgery, if you've never seen a surgery before, if you've never heard of a surgery, imagine just kind of blundering into a surgical suite. And in the surgical suite, what do you see? Well, you see lots of blood. And you see lots of cutting with knives. And it looks like to you that the person who's under the knife, the person that's laying on the table there, it looks like that they're dying. And so you rush in there and you jump to that person's defense and you say, Stop! Put your weapons down! You're killing him! But actually, what are they doing? Actually, what they're doing is they're saving his life. You see, there can be purpose in suffering. And I would venture a guess that many of us, we would report that some of the most important moments in our life, that the times when we grew the most, the times when we developed the greatest amount of spiritual character, the times when we got stronger spiritually, those times came in the middle of adversity. God can be at work here. In fact, God might be working in ways that we cannot know or comprehend. And the problem is is that the atheists, and sometimes even us as Christians, we end up drawing some conclusions about God and how He perceives all of this based on a very limited view, a very small scope of the actual overall working of God. We're only seeing just a very small part of the story. You remember in Genesis, the 50th chapter? In Genesis chapter 50, this is the story of Joseph, which really is kind of the climactic story in the uh, life of Joseph, the climactic chapter in the story of Joseph. And it is a story about Joseph's suffering. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers about all the suffering that he had endured? In Genesis chapter 50, this is verse 20. He said to his brothers, as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God was able to see the big picture, the grand picture of things, and He was able to use this suffering for good. And I will remind you, and I will caution us here, that you and I, we cannot always see that. We cannot always know the purposes and the workings of God. Much of that only becomes unveiled to us, maybe over the course of time. And some of that may only be unveiled to us when we meet the Lord in eternity. And I need to caution and say here as well, that if you are suffering, that does not just automatically and necessarily mean that God caused it. God does not cause all suffering. Nor does it necessarily mean that you have some kind of a character defect. So God's trying to work in you to fix that defect and to make you better. No. And we need to also be careful as well. When we go to people who are suffering, and we try to comfort them, and we're going to try to say some things to them that might help them in the middle of their pain and in their their, their, their problems, we want to be careful not to offer up all kinds of trite and ridiculous cliches. Thing, things like, God never closes a door without opening a window. Or God needed another rose in His garden. That's why He took your child. Stop it. Stop all of that. Oversimplifying the problem of evil and suffering in this world, that does not help anybody. But if we are going to talk about evil and suffering in this world, then at some point, we are going to need to be honest. 
And we're going to need to just say, you know what? Not all suffering is bad. Not all suffering is needless. Not all suffering is pointless. Particularly when we add this third part to the equation, and that is the important component of free will. Would you go back to the very beginning, please? Find Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God gives here His original set of instructions to planet Earth's original people. In Genesis chapter 2, God says this. Here was the command, Genesis 2 and in verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What happened next? You know what happened next. What happened next was man chose deliberately to disobey God. That's Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What was the result of that? What was the result of that decision? The result of that was suffering. A lot of suffering. Verse 12 goes on to tell us that Adam and Eve, their marriage suffered. Adam is throwing Eve under the bus, blames her for all of this happening. Verse 16, Eve is told she's going to suffer. She's going to suffer the pain of childbirth and all that goes along with that. Verse 17 goes on to say that their actions ended up bringing a curse upon the ground. Verse 18, thorns and thistles the ground shall bring forth for you. The world has now fallen. As a result, we even to this day, we live in a fallen and broken world. And in fact, we have all duplicated Adam and Eve's error by choosing to do wrong ourselves. And whenever there is self-centered and selfish behavior, the kind of thing that the Bible calls sin, then what's there going to be? There's going to be ramifications for that. There's going to be some consequences from that. There's going to be suffering. You think, for example, about David's sin with Bathsheba. David chose to gratify his fleshly desires. And he suffered personally over that. The 51st Psalm records the anguish that he felt as he tried to hide and cover his sin. But you know, that wasn't the end of his suffering, was it? No, David then had Bathsheba's husband murdered. That's suffering that's now being brought upon others. Yeah, David's suffering, but now other people are suffering the results of this. How many people had to weep and mourn and grieve over the loss of Uriah the Hittite? And not only did that suffering affect David, and not only did it affect other people around him at that time, but actually future generations of David's heirs and his family, they too would suffer in ways that were terrible and awful. Why? Because they were feeling the consequences of the sins of another. Sin has bitter fruit. And it brings a harvest that we reap personally 
And that the entire world around us reaps as well again and again and again. Now the easy response to that is to say, well, okay, God's all-powerful. We've already established that. Why didn't God just make it? Why didn't He make us? Why didn't He make this world to where there wouldn't be any sin? Where there wouldn't even be the possibility for anybody to sin? But if God made us that way, then what that means is, is that means that we would be nothing more than puppets. Mindless robots. Unable to choose the alternative. Not only would we be unable to sin, but that also means we would be unable to obey and love God. If we were just hardwired to always do the right thing all of the time, where would be the capacity to freely, voluntarily, willingly obey God and demonstrate our love for Him? Think about it with your kids. Alright, when they're small and you tell them what to do and they do that just because you told them to do it. Okay, that's one thing. But isn't it great when your kids start to grow up and they choose to obey and to do the right thing? Why? Because they love mom and dad. They want to honor mom and dad. They want to demonstrate their love by their actions. That's what we're going for here. That's what God wants. Listen, love is a choice. Our world doesn't define love in that way, but that's the way the Bible defines it. Love is a conscious choice. Love emanates from free will. What's that greatest command according to Jesus? Matthew 22 verse 37. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Do you understand that that command is actually impossible if you take free will out of the equation? What all of this means is, is that since we are given free will, that means that we have the ability to choose, to love, and to obey God. But we also unfortunately have the ability to choose to ignore and to disobey God. And whenever we choose the latter, then that's going to bring about sin. That's going to bring about bad things. And that's going to bring about pain and misery and suffering of every kind into our world. That is the reality of God creating free will creatures. Now I want to say, and I want to be very clear, that doesn't mean that God likes that. That doesn't mean that that's what God wants. That God's just okay with people using their free will in that wrong way and bringing about all kinds of pain and suffering and putting people on the fast track to hell. That's not what God wants. That is not God's desire. What started in Genesis chapter 3 and what has continued ever since then is not what God desires for His equation, for His creation. Which is why, fourthly and finally this morning, God has done something about the issue of evil and suffering. God sent His Son to this earth to remedy that problem. You know, perhaps the most important verse in this entire discussion is in the opening chapter of the New Testament. Would you find Matthew chapter 1, please? In Matthew chapter 1, this is a passage that I don't know if it ever gets talked about when you're having the discussion about the problem of evil and suffering in our world. But I believe this verse might be the most crucial of all. In Matthew chapter 1 and in verse 23, the angel of the Lord makes this wonderful and glorious announcement when he says in Matthew 1 verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, They shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We don't understand everything that's going on in our world. said earlier, we don't always know the workings of God and how He's operating. 
By that same token, we don't know and can't identify every time the activity of the devil and what the devil is doing every time. But we know this. We know this without a shadow of a doubt. Matthew 1 verse 23, God came here. And He came here not to be insulated from suffering. He came here to step right into the middle of it. To step right in to the rough and tumble life of everyday living on this earth. Jesus came here, in fact, explicitly to suffer. And to suffer in just the worst way possible. He suffered the betrayal of His friends. He suffered terrible injustice. He was murdered by a corrupt state in the most ghastly possible fashion. He was tortured to death. Let's just not sanitize it. He was tortured to death. And not only does the Bible say that that happened to him, the Bible actually prophesied. The Lord knew beforehand that that was going to happen to him. Would you look in Isaiah 53, please? In Isaiah 53, in this amazing prophecy of the suffering servant, the suffering servant song of Isaiah 53, notice what the prophet says there in verse 4. Isaiah 53 and verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our dumb free will choices. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You know what Isaiah is telling us? Isaiah is telling us that God is not aloof to our suffering. God is not disinterested. He's not a standerby, just kind of a casual observer to all the suffering that's happening down here, and He's just not going to do anything about it. No. He came here, and He suffered for us. The Apostle puts it this way in 1 John 3. In 1 John chapter 3, notice with me in verse 8. In 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 8, John says, 1 John 3 and in verse 8, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You know, these first three points that we discussed this morning, they are very helpful, I think. And I do think they provide us with some good ammunition whenever we are engaged in that intellectual conversation about this subject. But I think what we really want to know is we want to know, is God doing anything about suffering? Is He doing anything about the evil and suffering in this world? Maybe more specifically, is He doing anything about my suffering? And you know what 1 John 3 verse 8 affirms? Yes, He is. Jesus came to deal with sin and the harmful effects of sin. Emmanuel, God with us. God is doing everything about the problem of evil and suffering. And this is the part where I need you to get in the boat with me if you are personally suffering right now. Because when you are in Jesus Christ, when you are a Christian, then you have the opportunity to look at suffering in a way that is very different from the way the world looks at suffering. We are able to look at suffering in a very forward-leaning way. Because in Christ Jesus, we have the assurance that there is more to this life than just this life. 
Yes, there is sin and hurting in this world. But Jesus came, John says, to destroy the works of the devil. And that means that this canvas that God is painting on, it stretches far beyond what we're able to see in this temporal world. It stretches on way past even this present life. It's a canvas that stretches all the way into eternity. Beyond the here and the painful now. God is working to bring us one day to Him. To where He is. And that work is going on in and through the person of Jesus the Christ. Seeing suffering through that lens, that is radically different than seeing suffering through the eyes of an atheist who says, life has no point. Existence is meaningless. Suffering has no point because after all, there's nothing when this life is over. The Bible would dispute that. Look finally in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul will directly dispute that line of thinking. In 2 Corinthians 4 and in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, Paul says, For this light momentary affliction, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Imagine making the disastrous decision of viewing suffering from the myopic viewpoint of just this life alone. Man, that's a sad and miserable existence. What Paul challenges us, what the Bible challenges us, is to look further. To look beyond what is just seen right in front of our face. One writer put it this way, he said it's kind of like finding one page, a single page, out of an entire book. Maybe it would be like finding the 50th page of chapter 2 from the fourth Harry Potter book. You just find that one page and you pick it up and you read it. And you read that one torn page and you say... This just doesn't make any sense. I don't even get this. What is this even about? And since it doesn't make any sense, you know what? There's not even an author behind this. How foolish. We know better than that. Just because today's torn page might be hard to read and might be hard to understand, doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. And it certainly doesn't mean that there is no author behind it. Our God put on flesh and He came to this earth to personally rectify the problem of evil and suffering. And He beckons us to come and to receive the blessings and the benefits of His coming here. He beckons us to do that through faith in His Son, Jesus. I said that was the last verse. Let me actually do one more last verse. Would you go back to Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, I need to read verse 5 one more time. In Genesis 3 and in verse 5, this is the devil speaking here. And he says this, he says, For God knows that when you eat of this fruit, that your eyes will be opened, and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do, Do you see the original lie here? The original lie that the devil tells is that God, He's not good. The devil knew better than to tell Adam and Eve that God just doesn't exist. 
No, that was never going to fly. That was never going to work. They had spoke directly with the Lord. And so how about a different lie? How about instead I tell them that God, God's holding out on you. God doesn't want what's really best for you. God's not really good. Isn't it ironic that people today are still believing that lie and are still saying, God, if He is real, He's not good. Look at all the pain and the suffering in our world. Maybe you saw that picture that came out in the news this past week of the father and the little baby girl who were trying to escape from their country and get into America and their bodies were laying there in the river of the Rio Grande, I believe it was. I remember seeing that circulated on social media and there were lots of comments attached to that like, where's your God now? What kind of God would allow this? What an awful and terrible God you Christians serve. And in fact, many people use that same line of logic to say that God just doesn't exist at all. But if you and I, if we'll pause, if we'll take a breath, if we'll try to separate out some of our emotions from the intellectual debate, I believe you and I, we can know. In fact, I believe we can know for certain that evil and suffering, they don't disprove God's existence. No, they actually prove all the more that He exists. And they prove so very much the fact that we need Him. Do you see your need for Him this morning? The only way that you really can ever make sense of the difficulties of this life, the only way you're going to be able to find peace in the midst of all of the turmoil and the pain of this present life, is to come to Him through Jesus His Son. You can do that right now, this very morning, as we extend the invitation of the Lord. You can do that by confessing your faith in Jesus as God's Son, by turning away from sin, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, as Acts 2 and verse 38 instructs. You do that, that will place you in Christ. God will adopt you into His family, and you can then have the hopeful expectation of what God has prepared for His children well beyond this present life. It may be this morning that you already are a Christian, you've taken those initial steps, but it may be that you are feeling the sting of suffering, but it's not being caused by outside forces. No, it may be that that suffering is being brought, maybe it's being brought about on yourself, by your own sinful choices and decisions. You know what that is? That is the painful bite back of sin. And it is designed to provoke you to one thing and one thing only. and That is repentance. If we can pray with you and if we can encourage you in some way in that direction, then brother or sister, this is your opportunity as well. Let me throw out one more invitation. It may be this morning that you are just suffering, you're struggling, and it's not the result, as best you can tell, you are blameless. It's not the result of something you've done. It is just the things of this world. It may be brought about by others. and You just need the prayers and the encouragement of the family here. This invitation is for you as well. Whatever your need may be this morning, if we can help in some way, you simply need to make that known by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.